0: Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Terry Hutchinson. Welcome to tonight's edition of The Interpreter Foundation Radio. I'm joined by my co hosts, John Gee and Kevin Christensen. Tonight, our program will be brought to you in three sections. The first will be our New Testament in context, and we'll be covering Matthew chapter 9 and 10, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 9. And then after that, we'll be talking about some of the origins and questions about Joseph Smith and the practice of polygamy in the early Restoration. And then the last segment will be some various things we'll be talking about about issues in the church today. But I wanted to begin our discussion tonight, John and Kevin, particularly by talking about an incident described in Mark 5, and it also is brought up by none other than Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Now, Elder Holland has just produced a book with Deseret Book called Our Day Star Rising, Exploring the New Testament with Jeffrey R. Holland. Now, this book isn't a regular commentary about the New Testament like most are. This is more in line with his teaching's about the New Testament, and from the New Testament. But he gives us a particularly uh, poignant mention about a story in Mark chapter 5 that we talk about tonight. And it's an example of faith, and we'll be talking about that. I'm going to quote him here. I wish to celebrate the otherwise unknown woman who strained to touch even the hem of Jesus' robe in an effort to heal the issue of blood that had plagued her for more than a decade. This woman is a true heroine to me. She is nameless and faceless and anonymous in the story, but we love her dearly for her faith. Perhaps only if we lived in her day would we understand her desperation. She has had this affliction for 12 years, and depending on the exact nature of the malady, has probably been considered unclean by her leaders, banned from any temple experience, and ostracized in society generally. We are told she had spent all that she had seeking a cure from physicians. To say she is desperate would be a gross understatement. What were her feelings that day? What had she heard of Jesus and his miracles? How reluctant and shy may she have been? How large was the crowd? What were the chances, realistically speaking, that she could get a blessing from him amidst all this throng and clamor? Even if she could somehow actually get his attention, surely she would not be able to speak with him, would have no way or time to tell her story or even to describe her ailment. Her situation was hopeless, or was it? Can we keep hoping when all else, including twelve years of disappointment, tell us it is fruitless to do so? Something in her, call it hope or faith or determination or all of these, said to her, Perhaps I can fight through the crowd with enough faith to at least touch the fabric that touches him. Perhaps if I can just feel the hem of his garment, then perhaps he can feel my need. Perhaps just a touch will be enough, and the rest is history. She had, perhaps unknowingly, obeyed the most basic commandment Jesus ever uttered. Come unto me, he said repeatedly, and she had come. The rest of that crowd had come to observe or cheer or jeer or just have a great day in the streets. But this woman came with a single-minded purpose. She came to make true contact, spiritual and physical contact, with the Savior. She came, as the scriptures say, with real intent. No wonder Jesus recognized the touch even amidst all the jostling and shoving and tugging and pulling. Hers wasn't that kind of bumping, boisterous touch. It was the reach of faith, the grasp of hope. Those contacts are always recognized by the Savior, and in due time, they are always rewarded. Some blessings come immediately, some come later, some may not come until the heavens. But they come to those who come to Him, always. I love this woman and the face she represents. Now, here on Interpreter, one of our missions is to support and defend the doctrines, teachings, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through faithful scholarship. And we often talk about scholarly things here on the program. But the way Elder Holland has just presented this story and its impact on him is something that we all should always take with us whenever we read the Scriptures. So now, John and Kevin, we'll turn the time over to you and myself for some other commentary.
0: Know that there's the sense that there's a real power and real contact involved. And that, to me, that's a very realistic and telling detail. I know that, um, like, <clears throat> just before my mission, when I was, uh, uh, they took us up into the upper room of the temple, all of the missionaries in my group, and they had President Lee came out to speak to us. And um, at that time, this was in the... Uh, september 1973 when the coup in chile was taking place around yende and my brother brian was serving his mission uh in the capital city and we hadn't heard what was going on but he came out and he said uh, uh first i want you to know that we prayed for the safety of the elders and when he said that i felt this like electric shock go start from my feet go up from my body and out through the top of my head it was really stunning and it was just kind of assurance so I have a sense that there there is genuine power that is involved in this.
1: John? Hmm.
2: We lost. No, we're good. Okay.
1: Um,. So I think we're having a little technical problem, but let's oh. go on there we go Kevin's back
0: yeah oh sorry I think I just wasn't holding my phone close enough to my face since I'm using earphones.
1: so you um. want to summarize what what it was that we missed Kevin
0: okay well just the sense that uh, when the woman when the account says that Jesus felt virtue flowing out of him. But to me that's an indication that there's a real power involved and there, there's, there are occasions when I've felt that kind of thing myself and my wife has too and, you know, several people that I know have felt that exchange of power going from one person to another to, through these kind of blessings. So it, it's a sense that, that there's real power involved when there's real faith involved and a real healing. You know, when it's something that, um, is, you know, that, that it's God's will that these things happen, then it's, we can recognize that, that there's real Involved in making this thing happen.
1: Okay. Yeah. And then there's another major section of this, and that is the mission of the Twelve.
2: Yeah. I thought I'd look at this uh, a little bit. I, there are a number of facets of the commissioning of the Twelve that I find fascinating. In Matthew, in chapter 10, um, and I actually had a discussion with one of our listeners who uh, wanted to know why I thought Matthew was early, and this is an example of it. So he starts off in in Matthew ten five and six. He says, "Don't go and to the Samaritans, and don't go to you're only to meet with the." Uh, don't go into to the Gentiles you're only to go to the lost tribes of Israel and that changes in Acts chapter 10 but and so this is only in Matthew Matthew is the only one who has this prohibition and I would argue that's because he's written before the prohibition is revoked and the others are written after um, so it's it's interesting he's very prescribed about which places they wants them to go, uh, but he wants them to heal the sick, and uh, he sends them out and says, don't take any money with you. I'm going to rely on uh, your Heavenly Father and the people, and gives them instructions about um, uh, where they can go, and then also talks okay. about um, he says, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves and therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I think for the most part in the church, we have the harmless as as doves down pat. Um, You know, um, the being wise is something that's harder to work on.
1: Well, that, that wisdom term also has different meanings for them maybe than we think it does to us today, doesn't it?
2: Uh, well, fronimos is the, the term. And so that's not your typical – it's not sophos. You're not sophisticated. You're just – you're wise. You know the difference. So I remember years ago talking with a businessman who um, – And we were talking about something that – a public announcement by a university and uh, the businessman had – I would say was very wise in how things work and um, told me exactly what uh, the announcement would practically mean and he was 100 percent right even though it would be two years before any of that would come out. He had just enough practical experience with how people are and how uh, society works that he was wise, I think, in this sense, and that he, uh, he was able to correctly diagnose the problem and figure out what he was going to do about it. Um, where no one else that I knew of correctly predicted what was going to happen uh, and that's that sort of wisdom that we're that we need to have. We need to be wise to know, is this worth pursuing? Is this not worth pursuing? Um, how do we address some of these issues, and I think most of us. Most of us in the church are pretty good at being harmless um, but sometimes that gets us into trouble if we're not wise um, so that's one of the things and he talks Jesus also talks a lot about um, some of the persecution that's coming up um, and and he says, you know don't." sort of plan out your defense ahead of time just follow the spirit and uh, but you'll be hated above or by everybody f- uh, because of my name but he that endureth to the end shall be saved uh, and then if you're going to if they drive you out of this city go to the next one uh, you don't have to stick around and get beaten to a pulp
1: I, I think we have a little different mission now because they've asked us to build the kingdom where we are. So yeah. you know, as as a full time missionary we were told you don't have a lot of time to spend. But I think if we're living there, we have all the time in the world to try and help our neighbors and loved ones.
2: Well, this is a difference. So in Third Nephi Jesus talks to the twelve and he talks to the the multitude. And he gives them different instructions. To the 12, he says, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about uh, where you're going to get your food. He doesn't give that to the people. They're raising the food and providing for their families. So there's a difference in, in the assignment that they have and how that will affect the assignment. This is obviously given to the 12. And if you work out, You know, just what sort of settlement pattern is there in Galilee and Judea. And um, you're putting the 12 out two by two. That gives you six pairs. That's a lot of territory that they have to cover. Mm -hmm. And so he says, don't spend a lot of time in one place. You need to warn everybody. But then as the people settle down, he doesn't give that command to it's not telling them to move on he's telling them to you know they can stay and build up the kingdom where they are mm-hmm.
1: well that's kind of a, a little bit like something that happens in mark now in mark it goes into more detail about the people who's the 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 paralyzed man whose friends broke into the roof and let him down that story is told in Matthew chapter 9 um, where they come in without, of course, talking about the the element of the roof, but in the it's done in the same way. And I've always liked this story, and that is where Jesus, um, the Pharisees, are watching as this miracle is going to occur. And Jesus said, "Thy sins are forgiven thee." Before he heals the man, and then he looks directly at the Pharisees and says. You know is what's easier to say to forgive his sins or to, to to rise up and walk but so that you know I have the power to do this rise up and walk and the man does so there's a there's a miracle and a sign that's tied with that but it's it's kind of interesting because it's the faith of the friends and of course the paralytic man who brings him we have the faith of the woman that we talked about at the beginning of the program that elder Holland really loves who had faith just to touch his garment. A little earlier, we have the incident with the centurion, who I'm not even worthy for you to come in my house, but if you say it, he'll be healed. He has that much faith. How far can our faith go to help others? And I think the line that that Kevin, you, you and I talked about this a little off the air before, where does it end because we have the powers of our of our covenants that we make to hold our families together, to hold each other. We have a covenant to bear one another's burdens and to mourn with those that mourn is a baptismal covenant, to, to have that community and that family in the gospel. Our faith can help heal them. Is, that, um, is there a line where that doesn't, interfere with their agency if they choose to walk a different path? How, how does that—I'm um, just kind of wondering how far that goes, because obviously the faith that's demonstrated here and explained here is is a, a full faith in the Savior that blesses those who are who don't even come to the Savior, in other words. Maybe that question doesn't make sense. Am I making sense, Kevin?
0: Well, it, the concern is that we do want to have the influence, but, of course, the only influence we can have is persuasive. You know, it, it's uh, we want to attract people towards the gospel. We want to set good examples. We want them to feel our love and uh, see the Spirit and see the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. But then we think, you know, if only would someone would have a, a miracle that would help them. And the New Testament, of course, is full of stories of miracles that happen in front of people who don't accept them. And the Book of Mormon has the story of Laman and Lemuel have this, you know, same angel that comes, you know, actually rescues Nephi from some of the things they're trying to do to him. But as soon as the angel leaves, so does the influence because they start going on to their fears and resentments, you know, and there's, they go through periods of cooperation, you know, but ultimately it's, it's a resentment and pride on their part and um, and really, the only way to get through that is hopefully with patience and love and time, and and uh, we we trust God that God's will will be done, and that uh, you know, that He will have the power to dry all the tears from our eyes. And you know, the, the more we care about another person, the more we're emotionally emotionally engaged, the greater the risk we have for being hurt. You know, if if they disappoint us in some way, so it's it's something that has to be. You know, I think that is why our faith in God and Christ comes first, because, you know, he, he tells the apostles when he calls them, this isn't going to be a party, you know. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be dangerous and tough and frustrating, and you'll have disappointments. But there's a greater purpose going on that it simply has to be done, and it's giving people the opportunity. And that's uh, that's one of the best things that we can do, just think of ourselves as, you know, I want to, to give another person the best chance that I can to make a good decision, uh, through my actions, my testimony, my my faith, my doing my own <laughs> responsibilities and jobs, and trying to you know to do those sorts of things and fit them into my life with all the other priorities that I have. So we're just always we're uh, always faced with choices. You know, what what's what can I do now? Which of course is why we want to be open to the spirit. It's, it's, there's, and there are going to be situations where the Spirit's going to tell us to do something that's uncomfortable or seems far fetched or we can't see the point of. But there's that great line in the Doctrine and Covenants given to the early saints. Let no one count them as small things for there is much in futurity that depends on them. And I, I think about these these little small in, incidents, these moments like, a, like, you know, we just talked about a woman just touching the hem of Jesus' garment. And That was a very small thing, you know, a very big thing for the woman because she was emotionally engaged and desperate, as you say. And the event happens, and then we have this story that can carry on to give people hope to think if something like that could happen for that woman through her faith in Christ. Then there's hope for me for the kind of healing that I may be involved.
1: Yeah, that story led me to uh, to spend a lot of time in Moroni chapter seven, where we. Where Mormon you know, in a letter to Merle and I talks about faith, hope, and charity, and really ties them up and uh i mean i i we all know people who have family members you know who have either left the church or struggle with the covenants or whatever, and you know they're faithful they they go to the temple, they've been sealed um and they just get desperate like this woman and i think this story tells us to simply have faith in the atonement of the savior even if it's to touch his him will it help them will it heal them will the atonement certainly has the power to do it obviously they have their agency and and that's i think where the line is because if if we could make them do it so to speak it would really be a little bit like Sherem's argument in Jacob, where everybody is beaten with a few stripes and then we'll all be saved in the kingdom of the Lord. And that's Antichrist. So obviously the, there's that element of agency there, but I I think that that faith and that hope, just like this woman had, and just like some of these other examples. For example, Kevin, after you you talked about um, Jesus you know, giving the example of the new wine into old bottles, and then immediately on the heels of that is the story of Jairus um, and his daughter being raised from the dead. John, why do we think that those two are put together by Matthew right in that order?
2: Um, well, Joseph Smith always said, to look at, see what question is. Uh, brings it forth
1: but so there I mean actually he's on his way to heal the daughter who's 12, 12. And, yeah. and she dies which is a, a, a thing that's unclean in the eyes of the Jews we have the woman touches him on his way there yeah, and she also is unclean and yet he's pure and heals that you know that that. Um.
2: well there, there's of course a difference in Jewish law between unclean and sin it's not mm-hmm. a sin to be unclean and we sometimes conflate those two um, and it's so, the way Jewish law works um, I don't think they'd have an answer for what's the status in that situation because you have the the daughter who is dead, but unlike most people who's who are dead, she's no longer dead, yeah. You know, in in that sort of thing, it, it, and the whole law is premised on that once you're once you're dead, then
1: you don't come back.
2: You don't come back. So the question is, and the
1: body um, is that's left, the physical body that's left is impure.
2: Well, it, it's it's unclean, and you need to to clean yourself. It's it's you know, it's like. You know, unclean as in, say, dirty. So if you if you go out in the garden and you work with the plants, which is not a bad thing to do, your hands get dirty and you go in and you wash them off and they're clean. And that's a lot of what um, they have maybe a little bit longer time. They say, you know, until evening, mm-hmm. uh, you know, until sunset, You're that's not going to be... Uh not going to be clean, and we distinguished different types of of clean, but um there's some safety in that, at least from a hygiene point of view, because you're dealing with a corpse, and how did they die? Well, it doesn't matter um, they want you to to not be involved in certain things, you know just like you wouldn't go well. You don't go handle raw meat and then, without cleaning your hands, handle the, the vegetables. That's a big no-no in food preparation, in part because that keeps people from getting sick. So you do have – so what his status is is a question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and – you know, and and we treat the uncleanness, or we tend to think the uncleanness cleanness is treated like sin. Oh, this is something bad.
1: Uh. Well, he starts with the sins in this chapter because he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, and then he's criticized for that. No. and then he says, "Well, you know, um, well, first of all, he heals the the paralytic man and forgives his sins." And then heals him, then he goes and he is eating with the tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners, so he's criticized for that, and then that's when we we get into the question of you know the fasting when he's with them and when he's not
2: and and all of these things you know um, is this material de- thematic? Or is it chronological? Because if you look at our days, um, we don't typically have thematic days.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, <laughs> I I think it is thematic, and I, in fact, as a as I I looked at this, some of the stories that we have here are covered in other sections of the scriptures that are covered by others doing the the come follow me segment that we don't have. For example, in Luke chapter nine, there's a little segment about the transfiguration, which I'm, I would love to talk about that in great detail, but I think it's saved for a different lesson than than we're focusing on right now. And so it's, it's, even even as you try and harmonize the Gospels, they're still not a complete harmony because certain things are done in a different order.
2: Right. And certain things may be more thematic, mm-hmm. organized by a particular writer in a thematic style, and more uh, some of them in a more um, uh, chronological style. And I tend to... So I view Matthew and John as eyewitnesses, tend Mm -hmm. to think of them as more likely to put things in chronological order, whereas Luke and Mark are not eyewitnesses. They're putting together reports and are more uh, thematic, less likely to get the chronological order correct. Mm -hmm. Um, But... You know, and in many cases, this is all guesswork and is is your guess better than mine? maybe uh, who knows um, <laughs> if we acknowledge that okay, this is where we've stepped off of secure footing and into guesswork then um you know then it's not as important uh, so is this chronological or is this thematic? Well, now we're into guesswork.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, and you may be right or not, and I may be right or not, but that we're just guessing at that point. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I would – my tendency is to think, well, these things in Matthew are more or less chronological, um, but that's – uh, and I have a basis for that which I kind of explained mm-hmm. uh but I can be wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. Well I think more than the chronology of it in is what lessons do we take from what happened? And and I don't mean that in a thematic sense.
2: Right but what, we can take lessons from
1: right? we can take
2: lessons from individual mm-hmm. um right. sections from individual sections, stories yeah. and you had a great one uh that Lesson to Elder Holland mm-hmm. it came out of one story, and I think sometimes it's useful just to look at it is is do we get anything out of this story
1: mm-hmm.
2: maybe not on this reading, maybe next one, maybe last one we get more out of this particular mm-hmm. uh story yeah and, i and i I think it's if we want to look at thematic, if you look at um Matthew 9, and the various healings, and then you juxtapose that with Matthew 10 where he says, Jesus tells the 12, now you go out and do this.
1: Yeah. So, what do you think about their mission there, Kevin?
0: Yeah, go you (laughs) into it. It's it's a fascinating thing where he's just... um, Making this whole thing larger than himself and making it bigger than himself, even while he's the center of it. You know, he's, he's you know, there's that passage in Third Nephi where Jesus is saying, "These the things which I have done shall ye also do." And there's so there's the sense of him setting an example, setting the pattern, and then encouraging people, you know, these disciples, uh, and giving them a very realistic set of expectations for what's going to happen. You know, that it's not going to be easy. Uh verse twenty two in Matthew ten, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth the end shall be saved. And that uh, John mentioned, when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. And uh just okay. telling them how difficult it is, and then and then they go, which is uh I think it, it's a, you know just essentially get this these are remarkable men in remarkable circumstances no matter how humble they might look to us and you know, when we when we think of that
2: I also like uh, you uh, uh, verse 25 if they've called the household or Beelzebub how much more will they call his servants um, yeah we can expect to be we have all kinds of nasty things said about us, and that's
1: unfortunately to be expected. Well, that that kind of leads into a little later. In fact, that leads into something that Elder Christofferson says that's pointed out in the, in the material. Um, he says, What did Jesus mean by, I came not to send peace but a sword? Well, Elder Christopherson taught, I'm confident that a number of you have been rejected and ostracized by father and mother, brothers and sisters, as you accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and entered into his covenant. In one way or another, your superior love of Christ has required the sacrifice of relationships that were dear to you, and you have shed many tears. Yet with your own love undiminished, you hold steady under this cross, showing yourself unashamed of the Son of God." Now, a little later in our broadcast, we're going to probably talk about a little family history, but my great-great-grandfather, born in Denmark, Hans Christensen, joined the church when he was about 15 or 16 and was disowned, and he eventually came to Utah, never saw his parents again. They never spoke to him. My great-grandfather, CP, or Christian Peter, went to Denmark on a mission, and he was able to see his grandparents, who let him in but refused to talk about the church. I mean, for me, that's an old family story, but it really hits home here that a number of us have been rejected and ostracized. But you know, as I, as I read this, I have another thought in addition to what Elder Christopherson says. In verse 34 of Matthew 10, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, I came not to send peace, but a sword. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Well, we know Jesus is pro-family. We know the gospel is pro-family. We know that the family is the center of all of it. But what is this? Well, I think 37 and 38 are really important about this. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. That, I have a whole different light on that as I see people who, have children who make decisions or choices or whatever's going on, and they decide that because their children have chosen a certain way that they choose to abandon the covenant path. I think that is an example, a different example, of what Jesus is talking about here. And it's where we're not making Jesus the focus and the total center of our faith, which is the very first commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. That supersedes any other commandment. That supersedes the second commandment. That supersedes the honor thy father and thy mother, and obviously the child or whatever and we are commanded to take up our cross, whatever that is, and follow after him, and if we don't do that we are not worthy of him. He that findeth his life shall lose it, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And I don't I I'm, I'm certain that Jesus would not want us to abandon those who make different decisions or who have these choices or who have these circumstances that we may not agree with. We don't abandon them. But I I was watching a funeral last month for somebody that I knew on my mission. And one of his children said at the funeral, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And a lot of times that's what we do. If we don't stick to this principle right here, Well, we lose the Savior, we lose our covenants, we lose the power of the ordinances, and we are putting the world or our children or whatever else in front of and a priority over our love for the Savior.
2: And this is not to say that that's going to be easy. No. Um, I, I would argue the opposite, but it. This is is a, a facet that um, many people still run into, where um, uh, you know I've run into people who had to make the choice between their faith and their spouse, and. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do. And although in talking with at least one of them, wasn't sure whether if he would made the choice to stay or to do with the, the spouse once she rejected her faith, whether that would have even, if he'd gone along with it, whether that even would have saved the marriage. We just don't know. Uh, but it, it's not an easy decision. It is hard, and it is something that we may have to face and, uh, and causes heartache all over the place.
1: Mm hmm. Kevin?
0: Well, there's a
2: passage, I think it's in Hebrews, where
0: the word of the Lord is compared to a sword that discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart, separating you know, the bones from the sinews. It, it's that sense of, that this is the, the realistic effect of just knowing how how people are, that it is going to be a separating thing. But the ideal of it all isn't that kind of separation, it's the, the The ideal is then the the invitation for all to come into the covenant and accept the blessings of the Lord and, you know, all be welded into one family of people who all bear one another's burdens that they may be light. You know, this Zion society that we have the glimpse of in the the Enoch story and the Pearl of Great Price. So it's, there's the difference, the tension between the ideal, what is desired by God and what God expects because He knows us so well.
1: The son of man in Luke 9 and 56, the son of man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And, uh, you know, that, that was given in a slightly different context, but I think it really sums this up. And as, as John has pointed out, Kevin, and as you have pointed out, he is warning the apostles as he sends them out that things are going to get worse and things are going to be a challenge. And I, I think, and John, I think you've pointed this out in another context in some of your past writings. At this time, this is a growth process for the apostles. I mean, they go out and they do healings. I mean, Luke says uh, they, uh, they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But we come across sporadic uh, evidence in later accounts that it wasn't all smooth. There were certain demons that the apostles themselves couldn't cast out.
2: Uh, that's uh, like in Matthew 17.
1: Yeah, it comes a little later. But once again, it was learning. But then after the resurrection and after whatever happened during that 40-day period, there was no doubt, no wavering, no irresolution, so to speak. Yeah. They were all in and all, and and we get the stories and the miracles that occurred in Acts. Yeah. And,
2: and uh, Elder Holland once pointed out uh, one of the scriptures that terrifies him was one of the things that Jesus tells his disciples that they will do greater miracles than he's done. And... <laughs> uh and hey, that's an interesting word
1: you would use John <laughs> terrified
2: uh that i think was his term
1: <laughs> <laughs> i It reminds me of a friend of mine who was called to be a patriarch, and I was his home teacher at the time, and he came to me a couple of weeks earlier to kind of discuss the nature of his call and and he'd He'd been a mission president he'd been a you know he'd been in high councils of the church he'd done a lot of things in working for the church. And yet he said, nothing has terrified me like this. And I think of that word that you have right there that, you know, obviously he did it. The Spirit helped him. I'm sure Elder Holland will be up to it if the time comes.
2: You know, um, I think that's one of the reasons that we pray for the apostles,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, for (laughs) sure. We don't
2: have that burden, and they do, and uh, they need our our faith and our prayers. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about the, the things that are coming up on them, um, I'm reminded of Scripture we'll hit later in John, where he's, Jesus tells his apostles, the day cometh that uh, men who kill you will think that they doeth God's service. Uh, and people will be absolutely convinced that in killing them that they're doing the right thing mm-hmm. uh, that they're on the right side of history um, long term I don't think that's the case but uh, it's certainly is a daunting prospect and we're not told that that's limited to the Apostles although it was certainly the case with them um and from what we from the second hand reference is that we have none of them died peacefully in old age
1: yeah i uh, i i found a very interesting book about it a dozen years ago called apostle and it's by a guy who who was a lapsed Catholic, I think. And he went on a journey. It's almost like a travel book, but it's about visiting the so-called burial spots of all 12 of the original apostles. And uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating book. I, I think we'll probably talk about it a little later. Kevin, there's, there's, summing up in this last few minutes of this segment, in Matthew, he talks about... Um, Take no thought to how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour. Have you had an experience with that you could share with us?
0: Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think on my mission there's that the sense where we were you know, going to visit a family and uh, these guys were really wanting to ambush us to strengthen the you know, the wife who was curious about what we were doing and they thought, well, they'll bring over all of these you know, books and and all of this stuff. And my companion and I didn't know much, but we knew exactly what we needed to know to prevail. And, uh, there's a great line in the, you know, in the Doctrine and Covenants that recurs in a couple of spots about expedience. You'll know, be given what's expedient. And it, you don't need to be omniscient or all-powerful if you've got exactly what you need for the right situation. And I felt like a, a number of times in my life, it isn't that I'm, you know, better equipped or more knowledgeable than you know, a lot of other scholars out there, but I've been in situations where I knew the right thing. You know, I knew what was needed in those particular circumstances. And if, if our lives prepare us with just those things for the particular mission we've got, then, then we can go forward with faith instead of, you know, and there's, there's genuine humility about it because you know, I can look around and see other people who have more knowledge and more talent than I do, certainly. But I do have the confidence in the Lord that the Lord has been able to bless me with you know, what I needed to do or say in particular circumstances. And people have also blessed me in that exact same way, that they may not have known uh, everything in the world, but they were able to know or do or something that I actually needed in circumstances. And that that's, uh, goes with how the Lord describes gifts. It says No one has all the gifts, but we all have different things, and that means we all have something to give to each other. And uh, there's that, uh, the Lord talks about that he'll, he'll, you know, that the Spirit will bring all things to our minds whatsoever he's taught us. So we do want to fill our minds with as much information as we can so that we'll be more useful tools.
1: You know, I've had a couple of experiences where I was constrained from saying something. And it wasn't yeah. like, oh, you know, you don't want to be impolitic or you don't want to be offensive. I went and had prepared remarks in some personal situations, personal counseling situations with people that were very important. And I had an agenda. I had worked it out in my mind what to say, how to say it. And the spirit constrained me. It was almost as if when I went to I say it, Somebody put their finger on my tongue, and I could not speak it. And yeah. um, as it turns out, that was exactly the right thing to do at that instant. Later on, I could do or say something else, but, you know, those are certainly gifts of the spirit that we get. John, have you been yeah. in situations like that, I would imagine?
2: Yes. Um Without going into details, I remember clearly one time talking with somebody in the ward and, um, and they were having a a problem and, um, and I just said something, it just, um, and later the, Their priesthood leader came to me and said, What on earth did you say to this person? They've completely changed. And I won't take, I don't think I can take credit for what I said, but it was an example to me of being prompted to say um, precisely what that person needed to hear. I don't know that I've got many of those, but I do know I have at least that one.
1: <laughs> it's a It's a marvelous and beautiful experience that comes to the apostles. it comes to us, it comes to all of us. It's happened to me. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was uh, about a month or so ago, I was driving up here from St. George, and a friend of mine called. I hadn't spoken to him for several years. And he'd gotten a new phone, and his phone, for some reason, wouldn't connect to me. And he was driving. And um, he pulled over in order to call me. And we wound up spending about 45 minutes, and it was exactly a conversation that I needed to have for my benefit. I hope it benefited him but it certainly benefited me because he followed the Spirit like that. And I I just think sometimes it's not just even what we say or what we don't say, but it's the fact that we're reaching out and we're communicating and doing God's will in that way. So we want to thank you for listening to this first section of the program. Uh, Our next section, right after the news break, we'll have a brief period where we talk about uh, some historical issues, particularly with regard to uh, Joseph Smith and polygamy. And then we'll uh, move on to some other topics, and we'll announce those at the beginning of the hour. So this is Terry Hutchinson for John Gee and Kevin Christensen on Interpreter Foundation Radio. Thank you for listening to this first section of the New Testament in Context.